Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter and welcome to Fourth Avenue Church. Welcome to those that are outside worshiping. It's kind of cool if you stand over there, there's a little delay, so you get this like reverb of God. It's awesome. Welcome to those that are streaming on here with us. Welcome to those of you that are back here in this room for the first time in over a year. Praise God for that. And a special welcome to those of you that might be visiting with us today. Speaking of Rebirth, um, I do want you to know this. If you're looking for a perfect church, you've come to the wrong place. But if you're looking for a group of people for whom this story is real, and it comes out in the way, not perfectly, but in the way that we interact with each other and care for each other inside of these walls and outside of these walls, then you found a home, and we want to welcome you here. I want to begin just by reading the text that we're going to be looking at today. If you're new to the Bible, there are four different God-inspired tellings of the story of Jesus, four different authors. This is the second one in our Bibles, but as best as we can tell, it's the first one that was circulated around. It's in the book of Mark. And I want to tell you this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, if you've got, it won't be up here, I want to hear it, but if you've got your phones or your Bibles, you can look at it. And if you look at this text, you will find, if yours is like mine, if your Bible was published in, in the last or translated in the last hundred years or so, you'll see a little line right after verse 8. And I'll let that weird you out. Here's what, what it tells us, and it'll say something like it does in mine. The earliest manuscripts, the earliest forms that we have of the Gospel of Mark end where we're going to end today. And it goes on to say, you know, verses 9 through 20 aren't in the original one. Here's the way I think about it. There's a lot behind it. We can talk about it more if you want. But here's the way I think about it. The Holy Spirit inspired volume 1 and volume 2 of the book of Mark. And, and there's one, the earliest tellings of this story, the first time this gospel was ever read, it ended where we're going to end today. And it, there's time and place for the rest of it. But what I want to do is I want to hear the gospel today like it was heard the first time they opened the scroll and they read this text. And let's see what God is doing with that telling of the story. Does that make sense? So this is the gospel of our Lord from Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they were asking each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were terrified. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He's not here. See, look at the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End of story. Let's pray. Father God, as the psalmist prayed so many years ago, I pray again this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
one of the most important decisions you will ever make in your life. One of the most important decisions you will ever make will shape you more than anything else is the decision who you are going to trust. One of the most important decisions you will ever do, I think this is so important, I try to say this to young people all the time, the most important decision you'll ever make is who you let in to your heart of trust. Of course, on a day like this, we're going to think we're talking about who are we going to trust as the higher power, who are we going to trust as God, that's part of it, but also who are you going to trust to come into the center of your friendship and your trust and your lives? I like to tell people about when I, was, when I was younger, I had kind of two different friends that, n- not their fault but mine, took me two different directions. I remember one of my friends, we'll call him Jeff, that's not his name, but when, when I made the choice to trust Jeff and take him into the inner circle of my life, again, he's not an evil guy, he's not a bad guy, it's just, yet for some reason, anytime I was around Jeff, I ended up in trouble. I was a follower, I was not a leader at that time, right? And, and this is my first impression of Jeff, the first memory I have of Jeff. Again, I was little... I was naive, and Jeff has two dogs. Some of you will get there before, much before I did in the story. He had, he had two big dogs in his backyard, and he said, come on, we're going to the neighbor's house. And he's walking down with a, a brown paper bag in his hand. Some of you already know where this is going. I did not. He's walking with a brown, brown paper bag in his hand, some gifts inside from his dogs. And we came up to the front porch of a neighbor, you know, the, the, the concrete there on the front porch, and he put it down. He lit it on fire, rang the doorbell, and said, run. I don't know why I'm running, but I'm running. And then we stand from not too far away, and you know so, or you know what happens. They come up, and they stamp it, and all the great aroma spreads around the neighborhood. It probably doesn't surprise you to hear that when I let Jeff into my circle of trust, I ended up getting in trouble all the time. <laughs> Not just fault, mine. Then later I got a best friend, his name's Mike. Stayed together as friends for a long time. He ended up being best man at my wedding. Here's what Mike and I used to do. My, Mike and I decided we want to learn how to play this thing and never did very well. He did probably, but I did. But we, we learned guitar together and we played music together and we shared music together. And we would do that. I know I'm saying this, and some, Chris Barnhill and others will say, I don't believe this to be true, but we would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning before school, and we would alternate each other's houses. We had weights, and we would work out before we went to school. This is obviously not happening today for many reasons. (laughs) We'd talk about life, and we would talk about God, and I'm telling you, I was a better man by letting Mike into the circle of my trust. The most important decision you'll ever make is who you trust. And Mark tells this story because he's inviting us to trust a man who has a vision for life that will make everybody and everything better than you could ever imagine. And here's the thing. We know this, especially after the last year we just had. Don't we need somebody to trust? in the world crying out for somebody or something to trust. Because now what we're asking, as, as rooms are starting to fill up again, and we're getting vaccine, I get my shot tomorrow, I've already had it, you know, but I've already had the, vac- I mean, the virus, so I get the vaccine tomorrow, I'm going to be double ready, I'm going to like run around and dive into play. I'm loving this. Here's the thing, as we're opening up again, we're asking the question, what's next? What's next? We're asking the, that question in the community, in the world, what's next? What's coming up? And we're asking that question in our church. We have a whole team of people discerning that question. What's next? 
And I'm telling you, Mark is inviting us to trust a man who is going ahead of us into whatever is next and is calling us forward. And I actually believe, I actually believe this story will begin to answer some of the questions that's burning in all of our hearts at right now, both in the community and the world. In fact, by the end, you hold me to this promise, by the end, I'm going to break some big news, and I'm going to answer at least part of the question of what's next for our church and what's next for our community, because I believe the gospel will lead us there. All right, so let's get into this story. What, what do we learn in this story? If you're like me, you come in, you, it, and David Fleer's been preaching all this on different stories in the life of Jesus, at the crucifixion of Jesus, all of this stuff. You're waiting for the story to kind of get to its happy ending. We're waiting for Easter. We waited two years for this service. You're waiting for the end. You want the great resolve. And here's the crazy thing. The Easter story in Mark begins in absurdity. The Easter story begins a little bit crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Now here's specifically what I want you to see. What the women do in this story makes no sense. It's a little absurd and crazy. Now hang with me. I'm not picking on them. In fact, it's quite the opposite if you go with me on this. But understand what they're doing makes no sense. Hear the question they're asking. It's not just a question one time. It's the topic of conversation when they're headed to the tomb. Who's going to roll the stone away? Who's going to roll the stone away? I want you to understand what they plan to do that Easter morning makes no sense. It's completely absurd for a couple of reasons. First of all, can we just say, it's almost a comic absurdity. You know what I mean when you're telling a story move? It's a comic absurdity because they're going to finish the funeral for a man who is not dead. That's kind of offensive, isn't it? They're going to finish a funeral for a guy who's not dead. That in and of itself is absurd. Here's the thing. They have no clue that Jesus is alive. Whatever Jesus predicted and promised before, and don't pick on them. If you're like me, you wouldn't either. They don't have any clue. They're going to finish the funeral stuff. They have no clue that he's raised from the dead. Can we just stop there for a second and say, if you came in here this morning amidst all of the hype and the happiness and all that, and, and if you're in there saying, I hear that, but I don't. I don't know if I believe this God stuff. I don't know if I believe this resurrection stuff. Hear me. Welcome to the family. If you're here at the beginning of this and you're saying, I don't know if I even believe this at all. Welcome to the family because the key human characters in the Easter story, they didn't believe it either. They went there for a funeral. And isn't it glorious that we worship a God who gives us time to get there? Isn't it wonderful? We worship a God who gives us time to grow into being people that will believe some pretty big things. So it starts with this kind of almost comic absurdity, but it's also absurd what they're planning to do. They're planning to finish the funeral. Let me give you a little background on this. In the Jewish culture, they're not going to bury people underground most of the time. They bury them in big caves. And this is really important. There's not going to be one body in the cave. They're going to keep putting people in there. Number one. Number two, they don't embalm them. They want the body to decompose. Because in the Jewish culture, you put them in there, they decompose, and then you take the bones and bring them to a place of honor, a place called an ossuary or something like that. And you'll see stories of the Old Testament about them carrying the bones of the patriarchs. That's what they did. 
So they're not going there to try to embalm Jesus. What you did in Jewish culture is because you got to go back in that place again eventually, they're going to put aromatic spices on him so it doesn't smell quite as bad the next time you go in. Now let me tell you, that's their plan that Easter morning. Let me tell you two reasons why it's crazy. It's an absurd plan. Number one, they tell us. The Greek is very clear here. It doesn't say they asked the question once. It says it was the topic of conversation. They were asking each other, listen to this, when? As they're headed to the tomb, who's going to roll the stone away? Do do you hear this? I I was thinking, what's an equivalent of it? A couple years ago, our youth group went to Chicago. uh, took the youth group to Chicago. They did a bunch of things. But I heard David was going to be on this trip, our older son. They're going to go to a Chicago Cubs game at Wrigley. I said to Luke, he's not going without us. So we're getting in the car and we're going to go. We're going to get a ticket. We're going to Wrigley too. Now, imagine the game is completely sold out. How crazy would it be? Not too crazy if you know me, but how crazy it would be if we get an hour outside of driving all this way to get to Wrigley Field. And I look at Luke and say, by the way, what are we going to do about tickets? Bad time to ask the question. They're on the way to the tomb. How are we going to roll the stone away? Do you hear me? It is physically absurd to have their plan. They can't get in. Now, this is something I knew that before. Here's something I learned just in this study of this text. It was situationally absurd, too. What do I mean by that? In their culture, in that place, the body decomposed really quickly. And Jesus died without them having time to put the spices on to make it not smell so bad. The next time you come in there, Sabbath came. And when Sabbath comes, there's many things that are true about that. But you can't do this because it's work. Hear me. It was at least 36 hours since Jesus' body was put in there. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter that they brought 50 pounds versus uh, of, I don't know, Jerusalem's Walgreens spices to put on the body. It's not going to do any good. Do you hear me? It was physically and situationally absurd. Easter Sunday in Mark's gospel begins in absurdity. But understand, I'm not picking on the women. I admire them. Why? Because you know this as well as I do, don't you? Sometimes you just have to do something, right? Sometimes you just have to do something a little bit absurd in the name of hope and compassion. Don't you know what I'm talking about? There's certain things that happen in life to you, your friends, somebody, and you know you can't fix it. You know you can't change it. You got to do something. These women are like that. We've got to do something. I picture Mary Magdalene, who Jesus cast seven demons out of her. I don't know what all that means. I just know she's a pretty messed up woman. Jesus saved her life. Don't you picture her? She's always listed first. She's the leader of this group. She said, come on, lady, we're going to tomb. How are we going to do it, Mary? I don't know. Don't you think they're asking her all along the way? What are we going to do? I don't care. We're getting there. I picture them as good southern women, by the way. Here's what, if you're not from the south, let me tell you something that is absolutely true. If you are in distress, pain, or difficulty, there is a casserole in your future. Do you understand this? You know what I'm talking about. You have lost, you have pain or something. Understand. And it, we're laughing, but I'm telling you a deep truth. Because good people have to do something. We know we can't fix it. And these women had been around Jesus for three years. And I'm thinking they unconsciously don't even know it. They start acting like him. They start doing absurd things. They've been sitting in this story. 
and they see pictures of other people doing crazy things, not knowing how it's going to turn out. Think about a couple of them. They're, they remind me of other people in the Old Testament. One of my favorite stories, a guy named Jonathan, First Samuel 14, we're going to look at this story. Jonathan finds himself in a period of time where the people of God are getting whipped up, outmanned, outgunned by an opposing army. And they're so paralyzed in fear, they're sitting around doing nothing. Jonathan said, I'm done with that. I don't know what's going to happen, but we're doing something. Now listen, there's a whole squad of the enemy folks on top of a mountain. He grabs his armor bearer. This is the dude carrying the guns. I know they didn't have guns. And they climb. he says, we're going to go pick a fight. Favorite line in there. This is what he said. Maybe God might do something. A good question to know the answer to when you're on the way. <laughs> they go and pick a fight. Here's what's so great. Go look at the story. What it tells us is that God uses his absurd plan, steps in, and they gain a great victory. Or just a couple chapters before this one. In the story of Mark, there's this powerful story of a very humble woman who literally poured out her life savings to honor Jesus. It's in the form of very, very expensive perfume. She broke it all over Jesus, and all of the folks who knew better mocked her. And I love this story. Ladies, picture this story of a real man. Jesus said, leave her alone. And the quote was... Just woke somebody up. The quote was, hear this in light of this story. She has done what she could. Could she stop the death? No. Could she wake up the Pharisees? No. Couldn't do that. But she's going to do something. And I'm just warning you, by the way, especially if you're new, don't hang around this Jesus guy if you don't want to start doing weird stuff. Because if you hang around Jesus long enough, you're going to start doing some pretty absurd things in the name of compassion and hope. It happens all the time. Here's the thing, what I want to say. Can, can I just issue a challenge? We're not at the end of the story yet. Can I give you a challenge for this Easter season? I want to challenge you to go do something crazy that makes no sense in the face of some place in this world that needs hope. I know you can't fix it. I know you can't change it. Just go do something. Go pick a fight. Understand what I mean, not the stupid things Christians have done in the past. Go pick a fight against loneliness and depression. Go pick a fight. Get people connected. Do what my friend Keith did in early COVID where he found a way to come and greet people safely from afar. Go pick a fight against loneliness and depression. Go pick a fight against poverty and injustice. Do what my friend Lamont and other groups have done here. The Harmony Group that says, we're not going to fix systemic racism in America, but we can do something about bringing people black and white together in the name of Jesus. Go pick a fight. Go pick a fight <laughs> against fear and go pick a fight against the lies that are literally stealing our lives. Like my friend Jeff Borders just on Wednesday night, he is picking a fight against the lies that are getting into our heads. Go pick a fight. I'm telling you, God will use crazy, absurd acts of compassion and love and weave them into his larger purposes in ways we could never imagine. Or do something crazy as an act of kindness and generosity that's extravagant and over the top makes no sense. Think about last week where Gary said, this flood hit 
He said, we can't change the world. We can't rebuild every house. We can't, cha- we can't help everybody. But Gary said, I've got a neighbor in my community that lost a dear loved one just a few months ago, and he needs to see love acted out in the name of Jesus. And some of you went out on Friday and helped clean up and helped do some things. And that can be, it's absurd. Is it going to fix everything? No. But sometimes you just have to do something. Or my favorite image in recent times of this, my sweet bride. We have, Melanie and I have a dear, dear, dear friend of ours who lost her husband not terribly long ago. They've been married for decades. Such a sweet love story. One thing I didn't learn until I was preparing for the funeral there is that when she, she remembers the day and actually memorialized the day when she knew he was the one. She had a little scrap of paper. I mean, it was all tattered scrap of paper she's kept for all these years. And it said on it, she wrote it out to him and gave it to him years and years ago. It said, I think I love you. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? And what she did, she gave that to him, but she kept it. And she wrote their names on it. And she wrote the date on it. And she carried it with her for the rest of their lives together. And I remember as we were getting ready to start the funeral, she put that paper in the casket with him. It was a final act of honor. Now, can we bring him back? No. Can we heal the hurt in her soul? No. But you know what my wife can do? She can go find this beautiful keepsake box. And and right on the top of that box, she had inscribed the words, I think I love you. His name, her name, forever. And gave it to them. Why? Because sometimes you just have to do something to give people a taste of hope and compassion. And why can we be confident on Easter Sunday that those little crazy things might actually make a difference? Here's the awesome part of the story. Here's the awesome. God does his best work in the middle of the absurd and the outrageous. He does his best work right in the middle of the craziness. He's done it all the time. Here's the picture I get of this. Again, you don't even get to see Jesus Yet, in this story, we're still waiting for that part, but you do get to see a representative God. Did you picture it when I read the story? They come, they finally get to the tomb. They don't, they don't have to worry about getting in because they can, because the tomb is open, and they come in. And did you catch the description? It's so powerful. It says, there's a young man dressed in a white robe. We know from other places. This is, a, this is an angel. It's an angelic figure. It's a messenger from God. But sh- do you get the picture? They come into a tomb. He's just chilling. He's just sitting in the tomb. They're drinking a cup of coffee. He's enjoying Easter morning. He's just sitting there in a tomb. (laughs) What's the picture we get of God even before we get to see Jesus? Do you understand? Please hear this because some people, especially in the last year, need to know this about our God. God is calm and peaceful right in the middle of the places that terrify us most. He's not overwhelmed by it. He's not taken off uh, a guard by it. He's not overwhelmed by it. He can sit in a tomb and he's just chilling. Because understand, Jesus has been doing this all throughout the story. He is calmly dealing with situations that terrify everybody else. Jesus was a horrible guy to bring to funerals. He just didn't play by the rules. So time and again, he comes in and he will take little boys and give them back to their mother and little girls and give them back to their father. He changes the script. And where everybody else is going crazy, he's right there. Or he is on a boat in the middle of a lake 
in the biggest storm, imagine the flood, in a storm so big that hardened fishermen are afraid for their lives. And what is he doing? He's sleeping. <laughs> Our God is calm and peaceful and powerful right in the middle of the places that terrify us the most. And when we get that picture, we understand, here's the commission. I'm telling you, there's a world that needs to know that's where our God is. And so the angel commissions the women. Two words, go and tell. That was the song, wasn't it, Mark? Go and tell. Where we Go tell them. We get the opportunity to announce to the world, not just with our lips, but with our lives, that we worship a God who doesn't stay dead and isn't phased by anything that scares us to death. And that's where the story gets really weird. Because just as it started, Mark's Easter story ends in absurdity too. You realize this? It ends just leaving you hanging. Let me read to you literally what it says at the end. These are literally in Greek the last words. They said nothing to no one. Bad grammar but good emphasis, right? Double negative. They said nothing to no one. They were afraid because... End of story. It's the end of the guy, the original first edition of the Gospel of Mark. They said nothing to no one. They were afraid because and it stops. I believe the Holy Spirit inspires all of Scripture. That means not just what is said, but how it's said. So I just want to think just for a moment as we begin to wrap up here. What is this telling of the gospel story doing to us? What's it trying to do to us? I think it's trying to do something. Holy Spirit's inviting us to do something. Um, scholars call this a rhetorical trap. And you say, well, I don't, I don't really know what that does. Is Yes, you do, because you see it all the time. I'm going to give you a couple examples here, a couple from movie and one from music, all right? One is one of the best contemporary filmmakers that we know of, is a guy named Christopher Nolan. Thank to my daughter for introducing him to me. Some of you may have heard or seen his movie, Inception. Has anybody seen this movie? Okay, good for those who did, because I'm about to spoil it for you. Okay, I'm, I literally am going to give you the end. All right, so you can la 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 for a minute if you want to. But all right, phenomenal storytelling. Here's all you need to know to, to see the ending here is that it's all about kind of going into a dream world and you're doing stuff in the dream. The only problem is you don't know whether you're in the dream or you're in real life, right? So all of them have a little token, a little totem they call it, something that they can do a little test and find out if they're awake or not. And his is this little top. So here's the thing. If you spin a top and it goes long enough, what's going to happen? It's going to fall. It's going to stop, right? So how, that's how he knows he's awake. He spins the top. If it falls, he's awake. If it keeps going, he's still in the dream. And every time he's got to test it. Got it? Okay, here's the end of the movie Inception.
What? Are you serious? Don't get too excited. We're not done. What? Do you know what I did the first time I saw this? I pulled out my phone. What do you think I did? And the movie was like, what happened? <laughs> you could, I look it up again for this time, and people are having, they're, they're arguing, here's what really happened, here's the end, here's what's going on. It's cliffhanger. Um, all right, let's go a little more classic. Maybe you've seen this movie before, Gone with the Wind. You remember this? That's some woos, that's awesome. That's my wife, it's your favorite movie, right? We just watched this not long ago, okay? And I've seen it years ago, we were watching it. Here's the thing, here's how it ends. Not that part, but it, here's how it ends, right? She, you know, Scarlett O'Hara is the main character, and she thinks she loves Ashley. She does not love Ashley. She thinks she loves Ashley. She really loves Rhett Butler. Rhett Butler loves her. The whole movie's trying to, yeah, they even get married. He's trying to show her that they're really made for each other. Finally, at the very end of a long movie, she realizes he's the one I really love. And she goes to tell him, I love you. I really, it's you I love. And he says, frankly, my dear, I don't care. How does the movie end? Tomorrow is another day. I, 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 I know the story. I've seen it before. You know what I did? I pulled out my phone. Like, what I want to know. Did they get together? By the way, you know this. Some of you know this. They wrote a sequel. I'm told it's horrible. <laughs> they wrote a sequel to it. Or one more thing, because I want you to feel this. I want you to feel this. You are familiar with this artistic technique, and the Holy Spirit is an artist. So I asked these guys to come up and, and play with me a little bit. This is, we don't know what we're doing here, right? But you're going to dance with me, all right? So here's the thing, not literally because you don't want to see that. Um, in music, again, a little out of my area, but in music, one of the things, you will know it even if you don't know music. One of the most satisfying things you can experience is called the one, four, five progression in music. It's three chords that move. Most of music does it in these ways. So can you take us through, what, what key are we in here, by the way? A, okay, so I'm lying up here. So we're taking a woman from A. Help me. A D E, is that right? Yes, is it A D E? Is that the one four five? Is that A D E, alright? So I remember my music. Alright, so we're in A. Talk to me. We're in A. Do you feel it? This is the root. This is the key of the song. Now move, if you would, to the fourth. Right? This is D. It's very satisfying, you feel it? Can you bring it back to the root? Back to A. Do you feel that? Do you feel it? Now, musicians will tell us if you want to jazz it up a little bit, instead of just the regular one, four, five, with the fifth, you change it to, next slide, a seventh chord. Right? So E would not just be E, it would be a E7. So take me through, start, start, where are you now? Okay, you're on A7. All right. I want you to feel what it feels like to have a seventh. Just let it hang there. What a seventh chord, I'll tell it, then let you hear it from it. A seventh chord, my guitar teacher said, it is distressing the chord. Gives you a little bit of tension. Why? You want the literal word for it. You want it to resolve, listen to this, back into the root. So where are we still in seven? Now bring it back. Can you feel it resolve? 
All right, I want, I want to feel attention one more time, and I'm going to ask you, have, you, have you helped me with this? I know people hate audience participation. If you hate that, you don't have to do it, but I trust that Willie Chapante is here somewhere, and some of you will yell with her, okay? So I'm going to, I'm going to go get in the root. I'm going to get in the seventh, get in the seventh, play the seventh, and when I count to three, I want you to yell, finish it, all right? We in the seventh? Seventh? feel it? Gosh, we just want to get there, don't we? Now, here's the thing. One more time. Let's do it one more time, right? Give me a seven. You got to feel this, because this is what the gospel's doing. We need seven, and a seven. <sighs> Hear me, this is so important. The gospel of Mark ends on a seventh chord. What's it doing to us? It is crying out for someone to come and, right? And if we lock the doors, don't worry, we won't, and I'm about to end. If we lock the doors and they just played seventh chords for a while, somebody that knows how to play the guitar and the piano would come and tackle you and throw you off the stage and do what? It's crying out for that ending. Is it possible the Holy Spirit inspired the first edition of the book of Mark to cry out for lives to finish the story that the women didn't? So I'm going to end with this. I'm going to fulfill the promise I gave you. Here's the promise that I made at the beginning of this. I'm going to answer the question that's burning on everybody's hearts. What's next? What is next for our community? Because here's what I believe. Jesus is still ahead of us. He is alive and he's doing stuff. What is the next place? that the Holy Spirit of the resurrected Christ is going to break out in our community and the world, I can tell you definitively the answer to that question. You ready for it? You can get your notes out, you can get your journals out, you can write this down. Here it is. The next place you will see and experience the resurrection power of Jesus in the community in this church is...